So we continue with the hadith from Bal Adan and we come to the hadith which is in at least in my copy number 191. <laughs> From the hadith of Ibn Umar that Bilal gave the adhan before Fajr. So the Prophet commanded him to go back and to give the adhan uh, or to, uh, to go back to give the adhan again and to say indeed the servant has slept. And it's narrated by Abu Dawood and he said this life. This hadith, first of all, is a hadith which the scholars of hadith differ over its authenticity. And a large number of the scholars of hadith consider it to be a weak hadith, including Abu Dawood and Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Imam Ahmad. And a group of scholars of hadith, all of whom said that the error was that Hamad ibn Salama made an error in it, uh, even though he is a reliable narrator. This has a benefit, and it's something I'm just going to talk about for a few minutes. It's something interesting. One of the biggest problems you have in the science of hadith is something called al-ilal. Al-ilal is the science of hidden defects. So you look at the hadith, you look at the hadith, and when you look at it, it appears to be absolutely fine. There's no errors in the narrator, they all met each other, they're all reliable, they're all precise, the, Dates match up, the people match up, everything is fine. But when you look into the hadith, or when the great scholars of hadith look into it, they find an error in it. And this is known as an illa, a hidden defect. And it's the hardest part of the science of hadith. Because the apparent nature of the hadith is that the hadith is authentic. And that is why some of the scholars of hadith, until this day, say that you have no evidence to say this hadith is baif. Because the hadith is fine, all of the narrators are reliable. They narrated one from the other, from the other with no issue at all. How do you know the hadith is baif? Because many of the great scholars of hadith, they found an illa in this hadith. They found a hidden defect. Something which you would not normally be able to see. In fact, these hidden defects are so complex that some of the scholars of hadith were accused of being fortune tellers and magicians. And you have no idea how you could imagine or how you could extract this weakness because nobody else can see it except you. It's like you people are, you know, doing some kind of secret science that nobody else understands. But the reality of it is quite simple. 
These scholars of hadith spend day and night with the hadith of the Messenger of Allah And when you spend 60 years of your life day and night with something, you develop a skill like the skill of the person who, like the jeweler or the goldsmith who buys and sells gold. He just looks at the gold and he says, fake. Or he looks at it and says, authentic. Everybody else is giving me a microscope and let me weigh it and let me look at it and let me... But the scholar of this particular science spends so long with it that they, all, they almost develop a sixth sense for its authenticity. And so I think it's important even though we have a great deal of respect for those people who authenticated the hadith, it's important to note that when a large number of major scholars of hadith come together to say that a hadith has an error in it, you shouldn't be so quick to discount it. Like the muhaddiq of Bulugh al-Ma'am, he says here in the footnotes, he says, you don't have any evidence for this. Therefore, we're not going to listen to what Abu Dawud said. Because Abu Dawud didn't have any evidence. This for me is a dangerous, slippery slope. Rather, when you see big scholars of hadith, the likes of Abu Dawud and Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Imam Ahmed coming together and saying that a hadith has a hidden defect, don't be so quick to say, or oh, they don't have any evidence. Or you hear the likes of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari say it has a hidden defect, don't be so quick to say, oh, he doesn't give an evidence, we only accept the evidence. Those scholars in themselves, considering there is a hidden defect here, is worth studying. I'm not going to say that, and they're always right, but definitely it's worth studying. It's worth stopping when you hear scholars of that caliber, you know, great imams of Islam coming together and saying there's an error. One of the narrators made an error in it. Don't be so quick to discount it because you wrote in a book of hadith and you studied hadith for two years or three years and you can't find a defect in it. And it's a very difficult science. So I think it's certainly worth considering that the hadith has a weakness in it. Whether the hadith has a weakness or not, we know that the authentic ahadith of the Messenger of Allah clearly indicate that Bilal used to give the Adhan before Fajr. Bilal used to give the Adhan before Fajr. As in the hadith, Indeed, Bilal gives the Adhan at night, so eat and drink until Ibn Ummi Maktoum gives the Adhan. So we know this hadith, and it is a hadith narrated by Bukhari and Muslim, there's no doubt about its authenticity, proves that Bilal used to give the Adhan at night. So whatever the status of this second hadith, it doesn't take away from the permissibility of doing the Adhan of Fajr before the time and then repeating it again. And even if this hadith is authentic, it still doesn't eclipse the ruling in Bukhari and Muslim that it's permissible for the Mu'addin to give the Adhan before the time of Fajr. However, the second hadith was the evidence used by Abu Hanifa in his opinion to say that it's not permissible to give the Adhan before the time and the Adhan must be repeated. 
again, if the Mu'adhan gives the Adhan too early, he has to repeat the Adhan, as in this second hadith. In any case, whether the hadith is authentic or not, as we said, we have a clear hadith in Bukhari and Muslim that Bilal used to give the Adhan before the time of the Prophet ﷺ did not used to command him to repeat the Adhan. But he had another Mu'adhan who would give the Adhan at the time. So even in the second hadith, there was no other Mu'adhan at that time and Bilal gave the Adhan before the time and then was told to repeat it. It's a possibility. Otherwise, we say that this hadith, as many of the scholars said, is hadith on Munkar. It contradicts the authentic, strongly established sunnah of the Messenger of Allah However, there's an interesting point which is beneficial in it. And that is the point of the Mu'adhin being allowed to explain to the people that he made a mistake. And this is something valid. So for example, if the Mu'adhin gives the Adhan for Maghrib too early, which has happened before, I was just in a masjid this Ramadan, in a shariqah, and I don't know how it happened, but maybe one of the clocks was set wrong, but the Mu'adhin gave the Adhan about five minutes before Maghrib time. And of course, nobody was looking at the clocks, nobody was paying attention. Everyone just took the dates and started eating, and then there was a great cry of the time, and what, the what, the time, the time. And then the Mu'adhin saw that he had made a mistake. The Sunnah at this point is for the Mu'adhin to announce that he made a mistake like he announces the Adhan. So either to climb up and shout with his loudest voice that the Mu'adhin made an error, or for him to use the microphone if that's what he was using to give the Adhan to explain that the Mu'adhin made an error. And I don't know of any uh, disagreement on this issue permissible for the Mu'adhin and rather it's a sunnah for the Mu'adhin to explain if he made a mistake because the people rely upon the upon the Adhan so if the people know that Bilal is going to give the Adhan always before Fajr uh, and then they expect even Umm Maktoum for example to give the Adhan after that if there is any mistake or any error then the person has to explain the error that they made. So in this hadith, that Bilal gave the Adhan before Fajr, so the Prophet ﷺ commanded him to return and فَيُنَادِ to give the Adhan or to at least to announce أَلَا إِنَّ Indeed, the servant has slept. Uh, if this hadith is authentic in the meaning of the servant has slept, i.e. that Bilal slept and woke up and without realizing the time properly for Fajr. And so, for example, you know if you're, if you're awake for most of the night and then you get a little bit sleepy and you just doze off for five minutes and you open your eyes and then you don't really know where you are properly. So he presumed that the time had come for Fajr and he gave the alarm early. However, at least I think there's a very strong opinion that this hadith is life and therefore uh, the story in itself is not correct. However, it's permissible for the Mu'adhin to explain their mistakes, which is the important point that we need to take from this hadith. Uh, related to this, we established in the previous lesson that there is no Adhan except for the Fard prayers. 
There is no adhan except for the Farah prayers. There is no adhan for Eid. There is no adhan for the Sunnah prayers. There is no adhan for Tarawih. There is no adhan for Tahajjud. There is no adhan for Al-Duha. However, there is one uh, exception in which or which relates to the Eclipse. There is no adhan for the Eclipse. However, the Prophet ﷺ commanded the Mu'adhin to cry out inna salata or as salatu jami'ah The prayer is being, you know, the people are coming together for the prayer. The prayer is being held in congregation. As salatu jami'ah The prayer is being held in congregation. And so there is no adhan for anything other than the obligatory prayers. Jumu'ah being included in that. However, there is for the eclipse a call that the Mu'adhin makes that the prayer is being held in congregation. It's not the Adhan, but it's the statement of Mu'adhin as-salatu jami'ah. وعن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه أنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا سمعتم النداء فقولوا مثل ما يقول المؤذن متفق عليه وللبخاري عن معاويه رضي الله عنه ولمسلم عن عمر في فضل القول كما يقول المؤذن كلمة كلمة سوى الحيعلتين فيقول لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. The Hadith of Sayyid Khudri رضي الله عنه Messenger of Allah said if you hear the Adhan then say the same as the Mu'adhin says. That means when you hear the Mu'adhin say Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar then you say Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And when you hear the Mu'adhin say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, so you also say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. When you hear the Mu'adhin say, Ashhadu anna Muhammad al-Rasulullah, Ashhadu anna Muhammad al-Rasulullah, so again you say, Ashhadu anna Muhammad al-Rasulullah, Ashhadu anna Muhammad al-Rasulullah. This is in the hadith of Bukhari al-Muslim here, from Abu Sa'id al-Khufri and al-Bukhari narrated from Mu'awiyah radiallahu anhu. You say the same that the Mu'adhin says. Muslim added from Umar in the virtue of saying what the Mu'adhin says word by word that the exception to this is al-hayy'alatayn. Al-hayy'alatayn, hayy'ala salah, hayy'ala salah, hayy'ala falah, for these two you say La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah Al-hayy'alatayn is the is the uh, term for hayy'al-salah like basmala for bismillah and like the uh, any, the uh, the other phrases they have like a, a term that you can explain the phrase with Al-hayy'ala is the term which refers to Hayya al-Salah or Hayya al-Falah. So in these Hayya al-Salah and Hayya al-Falah, you say, La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. And that's because if you look at the meaning, 
come to the prayer, come to success, what is suitable to say according to that, because each of them is an affirmation. I bear Allah is great. I bear witness there is no one really worship except Allah. I bear witness that Muhammad Sallallahu is the Messenger of Allah. And then when the Mu'adhin says, come to the prayer, you say there is no ability, no power to do anything, no ability to move anywhere, to change anything, except with the permission of Allah. And that is very, very suitable to, or well suited to the phrase, Hayya al-Salah. Because when the Mu'adhin calls you to come to the prayer, what do you say? Say there is no might, there is no power, there is no possibility for me to achieve this success and to come to this prayer except with the help of Allah. Illa billah, except by seeking help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Except by seeking help, al-isti'anam from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so, we've established that when you hear the adhan, you repeat what the Mu'adhin says. Except for Hayya ala salat when you say La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah and Hayya ala falah when you also say La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. As for as salat khayyum min al then you repeat it and say it because it's not one of the exceptions mentioned. It's not from Al Hayya ala tayyum. So when the Mu'allim says As salat khayyum min al you also say As salat khayyum min al
muttaqin muadzinan la ya'khudhu 'ala adhanihi ajra and take a muadzin that doesn't take a wage for his adhan and take a muadzin that doesn't take a wage for his adhan and this is narrated by al-khamsa al-khamsa abu daud al-tirmidhi nasai ibn majah al-imam ahmad and it was declared hasan by al-tirmidhi and sahih by al-hakim and the hadith is sahih this hadith deals with the issue or at least with the author al-hafid ibn hajar added this hadith for the purpose of explain the ruling related to taking a wage from the Adhan. I need the Mu'adhin that takes a wage from the Adhan. Is it permissible to take a wage from the Adhan or not? And that's why the author included it in Babala. Is it permissible to take a wage from the Adhan or not? So what does this hadith indicate to us from its apparent nature, what you say this hadith indicates to us. You look at this hadith and say the viral hadith, the apparent nature of the hadith, is that it's not permissible to take a wage for the other, right? Sheikh uh, Abbas, rahimahullah ta'ala said, mentioning the hadith of Uthman and Abil As, when he was asked to be the imam of the people, you are imam, pay attention to the weak among them and appoint a mu'adhim who does not take a payment for the adhan. Shaykh Allah said, this indicates that the mu'adhim who volunteers to give the adhan is better. However, the scholars stated that if a mu'adhim is given something from the later man, there is no blame on him for that and there is nothing wrong with that. Because the later man is for the interest of the Muslims and the same applies to the awqaf, the, uh, the trusts that have been established to support the mu'adhim and the imam. There is nothing wrong with that. And then she went on to speak about the hadith. He said, perhaps the hadith refers to one who insisted on payment. I said, I will not give the call to prayer unless I am paid for it. Uh, this is closer to the apparent meaning of the text. As for the one who is given for the later mass, such as the teachers and the imams, and the Mujahideen, and this does not come under this heading, inshallah. But there is no doubt that the one who does not want to take anything at all and wants to volunteer to do this is more complete in terms of sincerity and It's from Shaykh Mubaz, So, how do we understand this hadith? The apparent wording of the hadith is that it's not permissible to take uh, a wage for the other. However, as we heard in the fatwa of Shaykh Mubaz, it is permissible for the Imam and the Mu'adhin to take a wage, especially if it comes from the later man or from the Awqaf. Then it comes from the, the government who pays for the Imam or pays for the Mu'adhin, or it comes from a private wealth like a charity that wants to provide an Imam and a Mu'adhin. Why? Because this is from the Maslaha of the, for the Maslaha of the Muslims, for the benefit of the Muslims. At the end of the day, we need to have an Imam, we need to have a Mu'adhin for the Masjid. Circumstances are such that it's difficult for people to do this on a voluntary basis in every Masjid, in every place. If you find a volunteer that does it, Alhamdulillah. But if the government wants to provide a wage for an Imam or a Mu'adhin, and likewise if there are some private Awqaf charities that want to provide a wage for an Imam or for a Mu'adhin, then this is something beneficial because it's a need, fulfills a need of Muslims, and that's why 
we have government spending on Islamic projects, what we call awqaf or what we call Baytul Man, that exists to, be, to provide support and benefit for the Muslims in their religious needs. So likewise, if an Islamic teacher needs to take a, a wage for the teaching that they do, one of the, the conditions for this, one of the things which uh, was stipulated, and I think this is a good opinion, and I used to hear this a lot from our Shaykh Abdul the Shaykh used to say that if a person has the intention that they wish, for example, to teach or they wish to give the adhan, but they know they can't do that without taking a wage, then as long as the intention to give the adhan comes first and the taking the wage is secondary, it's only just a setup to a cause, just to fulfill my needs in my life, you know, just so that I am able to do it, and that if you didn't need the wage, you wouldn't take it, then this person has no blame against them whatsoever. So this is the case with some teachers. Some teachers can teach for free. Some teachers, they need to take the wage to, su to suffice them for their, you know, their needs, their food and their, you know, their apartment, their family needs and so on. However, they say, if I could teach without any muqabit, without any wage, without anything given to me, then I would do that. And the wage that I get is secondary. It's not my aim. It's not like I'm thinking, oh, let me teach it here because I'll get a better wage, or let me teach there because I'll get a higher wage, or let me try to teach double the classes so I get a better wage. I'm not going to teach here because I won't get paid so much. But a person who says, look, my aim is to teach. Getting a wage is secondary. Then there is no harm on this particular There is no harm in this at all. Likewise, the Muayyadhin and the Imam, that the person who says, I want to give the Adhan, I would love to be able to give the Adhan as a volunteer. However, I can't give the Adhan as a volunteer because I will not be able to support myself and my family. Therefore, there's an opportunity from the Beitul Man, from the world wealth of the Muslims, to be able to be a paid Muayyadhin. And there is no harm in that, inshaAllah ta'ala. So I guess we can see in this there are two or three levels. Uh, the best level is the one who volunteers. Likewise, the one who wishes they could volunteer, but takes a wage as a, you know, as just a fulfillment of need. And then thirdly, a person who wants to take it from the bait of man, who says, I want to have a wage for it, but I'm taking it from some of the charities or from a government uh, fund which is there to provide for the people. And this is for the benefit of the people. This is for the benefit of Muslims to have these kind of facilities available. Sheikh took this hadith to refer to the one who says, I will not give the adhan unless you give me a wage. He says, I will not give the adhan unless you give me a wage. And this person, you fear for their sincerity. You don't say that they're, they're guaranteed to be insincere. However, you fear for that person's sincerity. Uh, that could be a difficult so hopefully this has explained the issue of sincerity as it relates to Islamic activities and being paid for them. There is no harm in being paid by a charity or being paid by a government Islamic fund. However, a person, if they avoid that and they can do it voluntarily, then that's even better. And if they have to do it, then they should see the wage as secondary and they should see the, the worship of Allah, the act of worship they are doing as being primary. 
أنا الله عز وجل مسلسل وعن مالك بن الحويرز رضي الله عنه أنه قال قال أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وإذا حضرت الصلاة فليؤذن لكم أحدكم الحديث أخرجه السبعة And from Malik ibn Huwayr he said the Prophet said to us, when the prayer time comes, let one of you give the other. And this was narrated by the seventh, by Bukhari and Muslim. Abu Dawud and Nasayyid Tirmidhi and Umajah and Imam Ahmed. This hadith is an evidence for the permissibility of anyone giving the other. The permissibility of a group of people who get together and they nominate one of them to give the other. And it's not necessary to have a designated mu'adhin. There is no harm in having a designated mu'adhin as the Prophet did with Bilal and Ibn Ummi Maktoub. However, there is also no harm in a group of people saying, You give the other. However, who should give the other? The one who has the most beautiful voice, the one who has also a loud voice, the one who has a clear voice who is able to be heard by lots of people. And this is uh, things that we spoke about last lesson, about the conditions of giving the adhan. So this hadith is a proof that there is no harm in the person, if there is a group of people, nominating one person to give the adhan. Just like there is no harm in nominating one of them to lead the salah. And we'll cover this later on in the coming hadith, that who should lead the salah? As the Prophet said, Let the one of you who knows the most Quran lead you. So there is no harm in a group of people who come together to pray in Jama'ah and they say, You go give the Adhan, you know the most Quran, you go and lead the Salah. However, they should choose according to the balance given to them in the Sunnah of the Prophet. وعن جابر رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لبلاد إذا أذنت فترسل وإذا أقمت فاحذر واجعل بين أذانك وإقامتك قدر ما يفر الآكل من أكله الحديث رواه الترمذي وضعفه فرج جابر رضي الله عنه the Messenger of Allah said, When you give the Adhan, let's see what you have here. I said deliberately. No, that's not a very good translation. I sometimes think that I don't have a very good translation. I read the book and then realize that the translation in the book is worse. If you give the Adhan, do so slowly, I think is the best word. Not slowly, but like. Uh, elongate it, make it elongated. And you make the adhan lengthy and slow and relatively long. And if you give the iqama, then, then quickly. So this is the opposite. Tarasal is the opposite of fahdu. And if give the adhan, give the iqama quickly. So from this is that the iqama is not like the adhan. The adhan is uttered slowly. Now we said that we shouldn't exaggerate with regard to that. It shouldn't be so long that you can't hear what the words are. However, the adhan should be measured and relatively slow and quite elongated and lots and lots of people can hear it. As for the iqama, that the iqama should be relatively quick 
it shouldn't be prolonged. So for example, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, like this at normal speed. Whereas the adhan might be Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. So the adhan is long and slow and the iqama is short and relatively quick. And leave between your adhan and your iqama the length of time that it would take for a person eating to finish their food. And this hadith is narrated by Imam Tirmidhi and declared to be da'if. Uh, the end of the hadith, this hadith has an end. And the drinking person from their drink, uh, and the person who needs the bathroom when they need to finish their, uh, to finish their need, and do not stand until you see this is the end of the hadith. Uh, this hadith is life. However, there are uh, some points that we can benefit from it. There is no doubt that the adhan is uh, in itself is given in a way that is prolonged and a way that is heard by people because the adhan is what? The adhan is a message to the people outside of the masjid to come to the prayer. As for the iqama, then the iqama is a message for the people inside of the masjid to line up for the prayer. And traditionally, the iqama was not given from the minaret, for example. Not that there was a minaret at the time of the Prophet, but as you, you understand the idea, the adhan would, be, adhan would be given from the roof, for example, or from the minbar, or from the minaret. And the iqama would be given from the sun, from the first row of, of the prayer. Because the iqama is a message to the people inside of the masjid and the adhan is a message to the people outside of the masjid. Therefore the iqama is different from the adhan. Uh, as for this issue of making a gap between the adhan and the iqama, there's no doubt that the Prophet in certain prayers made a, or in all of his prayers made a certain gap between the adhan and the iqama. There has to be enough time for a person, for example, who is there has to be enough time for a person to make wudu. There has to be enough time for a person to reach the masjid. And there are various narrations about how long the Prophet used to leave between the adhan and the iqama. And we mentioned one of them with regard to the fajr prayer. The Prophet used to leave a significant amount of time between the adhan of fajr and the iqama of fajr. And that is particularly important with fajr because people are waking from sleep. And sometimes people will need to make also etc. So they will not be able to reach the masjid in a, in a short time. And then we know that the Prophet said between every adhan and iqama there is a prayer. And so there was at least be, even a moment there would at least be enough time for the people to uh, to pray to Rakhah as they used to do at the time of the Prophet It's uh, important to note in this that the difference or the distance between the adhan and the iqama is something which needs to bear in mind the needs of the people. Because we see here, and I've mentioned it before, this problem of the adhan of maghrib and the iqama of maghrib. There is no reason to leave five minutes between the adhan and the iqama of maghrib when it causes hardship for the people. Yes, there's no doubt the Prophet used to bring maghrib very early, 
We know that because we heard the hadith that they used to be able to see the, the places where their arrows fell after they had come out from the prayer. We know that that means they used to do it longer. However, especially for example Mondays and Thursdays and fasting days, it's very, very difficult with the setup of people's houses, how it is now. It's very hard, especially for a masjid that sits around apartment buildings, for someone to get from the 30th or the 35th floor to the masjid. At moderate time, it's an impossibility. If you leave five minutes before the Adhan, you cannot reach for the first rakah. Because you're coming from a very high floor all the way down, it takes a very long time. So it's important for the Imam and the people who develop the prayer timetables to bear in mind the gap between the Adhan and the Iqama according to what is needed by people. So we see this in Ramadan. We see in Ramadan they delay the gap between the Adhan and the Iqama at Maghrib, which makes sense. However, they don't do it on Mondays and Thursdays and Ashura and uh, you know and, and the day of Arafah and other days of fasting. So there needs to be sort of an understanding, especially with regard to the Imam of the Masjid. There's not a lot you can do here because your times are set for you. But the Imam to take a little bit of extra time between the Adhan and the Iqama when there is a Maslaha, a need for the people. I think what we'll do is we'll stop there, inshallah. And what we can do in the night is we can finish this part off what we need next week, inshallah. Because there, is a, there are a couple of longer issues that we need to deal with. Uh, and I think if we start now, we're going to get ourselves quite late. Uh, so especially since I think a few people have, uh, are going away various places with the whole long weekend break, inshallah. It makes sense for us to stop rather than to be here for another you know, half an hour or 45 minutes, inshallah. And then next week we can finish off and start that show. So we might at least begin the explanation of the, of the second chapter, inshallah ta'ala, the conditions for the prayer. Uh, next week we'll be here later. But hopefully we've covered most of the major issues with regard to the Adhan. Left is, uh, is there a, a need to have wudu for the Adhan? And the issue of the Iqama, does the same person who give the, gives the Adhan have to be the same person who uh, gives the uh, Iqama? Those are the major issues that are left. And then we start the chapter of the conditions of the prayer. Uh, I would emphasize that I think it's, we're getting towards some of the most important chapters in the whole of the book of Qur'an. In my opinion, the chapters that deal with the prayer, that deal with getting ready for the prayer, the conditions of the prayer, these chapters that are coming are extremely, extremely important. So I would just encourage everybody to do their best to attend inshallah and to make notes and to ask questions and those things that if there are things that you don't understand. And Allah is the most best. Subhanahu wa alhamdulillah. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu.